Anano Bhattacharya is a correspondent at The Economist and the author of The Man from the Future, The Visionary Life of John von Neumann. This is Anano Bhattacharya. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, all right, great. I'm here with Anano Bhattacharya. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. That's a pleasure, Duncan. Uh, so you've written, an, <clears throat> excuse me, you've written an interesting book uh, about uh, a guy who is should be better known than he is. He is an Einstein-like figure, but he does not have the Einstein-like reputation. Uh, John von Neumann, The Man from the Future, is the name of the book. Um, the range of topics that he worked on is incredible. I'm sure we'll get into it. I, I'm curious, just starting off here, why do you think this guy is not as renowned as he probably should be? Yeah, I mean, since I've written the book, I noticed a few people have started to refer him as a latter-day da Vinci. Some of the reviewers mentioned that. And I think um, that sounds wildly overblown, but I think um, it's actually pretty apt when you realise what he did. I think part of the problem is that his contributions were really so wide-ranging that um, it's been difficult to um, bring them together in one place and to and to really understand them um you know if you think about the big figures of the 20th century the big scientific figures people like einstein they're renowned for for one thing you know it's relativity um, that you can easily associate with them but von neumann's contributions seem so scattered um that it's really been quite difficult to kind of thread them together into some sort of coherent whole story and um i mean so that's one thing and i think the second thing which the title alludes to is that um he's kind of i call him the man for the future but i think in 10 years time he's still going to be the man from the future i think some of his ideas are really only beginning to be realized now and um i i think we're going to find you know in the next decade stuff that seemed really far-fetched um like 20 30 years ago are gonna you know be realized and um then his importance is gonna you know rise even further so i think he's still he's, he's very much somebody who's been kind of lost but is now returning to to prominence as we see his name cropping up in more and more different um contexts yeah, it's interesting the comparison to Da Vinci because I, I, I think that this guy's way smarter than Da Vinci and had way more real contributions to math and engineering. I mean, obviously Da Vinci's great, but he built or sketched out a bunch of flying machines that didn't really work, a bunch of you know cannons that didn't really work. He was mostly an artist, which is great, but uh, God, this guy is way more stunning. Um, <clears throat> and one of the ways that we sort of access for people who aren't necessarily acquainted with the <clears throat> the math and physics side of what he did. Um, one of the ways that we access as readers the sort of the, the depth of his genius is these anecdotes about people just being like, you know, bowled over by uh, you know feats of his mind. And it, it happens even at a young at a young age when you talk about like um, you know he reduced his tutor to to tears and stuff like that. Are are these anecdotes? Um, when you were writing this book, do you think any of this is like myth building? I, I mean, at some point I, I read this, I'm like, all right, fuck this guy. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I get it. He's, he's great. You know? Yeah. Um, 
Um, well, I, I was trying to avoid that, um, to be honest, because if you look him up on, on Wikipedia, that's what you get. You get massive trains of these anecdotes, which can build the, the legend of von Neumann without really explaining why, you know, this guy is someone that, you know, we should be in awe of. I mean, it's certainly, he, he was this incredible calculator. Yeah, we know that he could multiply big numbers together in his head, but that just makes him sound like a circus freak. And uh, I think part of the mission with this book is to show actually, no, he was, um, he was a really deep, thinker who's way ahead of his time in, in, in some ways. And he understood um, exactly what he was doing as he was going about kind of seeding our future. Um, so I think that those anecdotes, I've kept a few in um, when, you know, when, uh, when, when the occasion required it. But in fact, what I've tried to do is, um, is um, steer away from this conventional biography, this conventional sort of myth building. And really, you know, you look at his ideas, he, he turns up at say, I don't know, Los Alamos, um, helping to build uh, the, 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 the atom bomb. But then uh, we kind of press fast forward on, on these ideas and then follow them up to the present day. And, and we almost leave him behind um, in some chapters to really explore what happened next. And um, I, I found by contextualizing um, von Neumann really and his achievements um, that instead of diminishing him as a genius, that to me, by the end of it, I thought, I, even I don't know why this guy's not yeah. better known than, than he is. Um, and, I, you know, that was sort of the, the object of the, the exercise and why the, the book's quite unusual. Yeah, and at what point in his life did people realize that this guy was going to be super special? I mean, not just a precocious young man, but someone who could make a real dent in the history of science. Um, well, I think um, his reputation as, as a mathematician was already made, really, by the age of 19, when he um, solves this problem in set theory. Um, which had been stumping so many mathematicians over twice as age. So it would be um, 1920. And, um, you know, he has a draft of his PhD thesis, thesis by, by 19. He's finished by uh, about 21. And his examiner is the, the best-known mathematician of the age, David Hilbert. And Hilbert's so astonished by... Um, von Neumann's uh, thesis defense that all he he asks him is you know um, pray tell who is the candidate's tailor because uh, von Neumann was so well um, attired um, throughout his life um, that uh, that Hilbert fancied uh, a, a suit as uh, as good as the uh, as the young von Neumann but I mean, the, this, this, was, this was a really deep problem. So set theory is kind of the language of mathematics and it's what mathematicians use to, to prove theorems. And at the time, these um, strange paradoxes were appearing in set theory. 
and uh, they took the form of, um, I guess, the, the, the liar's paradox, which is, you know, if I say this statement is a lie, um, if it's true, it's false, if it's false, it's true. Um, and the, the paradoxes in set theory took a similar form. And you started talking about um, the sets of all sets that contain themselves or do not contain themselves, people were tying themselves in knots. And he helps to kind of begin to sort this mess out. And the, the issue is if you can't talk about infinite sets, then you can't prove theorems because when you want to prove something in mathematics, um, say if you have a theorem about prime numbers, then it has to apply to all prime numbers. And, and what this, um, this thesis showed is that von Neumann was incredibly good at taking like seemingly intractable problems and then kind of boiling them down to their logical essence. And then he has this kind of bulldozer-like brain that just, um, just completely um, solves the problem once it's been reduced in this way. And um, uh, incredibly, he uh, then uses a sort of similar approach to all of these practical problems later in his life. And um, although, you know, I do allude to some of his accomplishments in kind of pure mathematics, which were admired by other mathematicians. Um, I think, you know, the brunt of the book is really to do with these, uh, these inventions, these real tangible things that he achieved. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, as we move into that sort of phase of his, his tangible inventions, um, something that does um, sort of come into play is not just his uh, mathematical uh, engineering mind, but also elements of politics and uh, his beliefs about global affairs. Uh, famously, he advocated for a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union, which I'd like to talk to you about. Um, but was there any experience, he came over to the United States during World War II, was, was there any experience, uh, or yes, he, he came over uh, as a result of uh, the Nazis taking power, et cetera. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so, yes, he hated authoritarianism of, of all kinds. So he had gone through this experience after the First World War, where Hungary um, experienced a a kind of communist uprising, a revolution. And it lasted all of six months, but it was quite brutal. Um, and then immediately afterwards, an even more brutal regime led by um, a military commander, General Horthy, swept in, and it was a sort of nationalist forces under him. And they and they killed even more people, many, you know, 10 times more people. And there were you know, executions on the streets and had public hangings and um, all sorts of Awful stuff. So he had this um, as he was growing up, which left a deep mark. And then um, initially to, to make his name, he, he leaves Hungary to, to um, join the best maths department in the world, which was under David Hilbert at the University of Göttingen in Germany. And there, already from a very early age, as, as a teenager, even even in, by the time he hits 20, he's already predicting there's going to be a second catastrophic world war. And in his letters, I mean, he, he comes from a Jewish background. He's, he's predicting that um, there will be a, a mass slaughter of, of Jews in Europe. Um, so um, so this, is, uh, this is kind of um, how his temperament was, was forged. Now, by and large, in his personal dealings, he was this affable 
guy. He liked to drink. You know, his his second wife said he could count everything except calories. Um, he like you know he like he, he he threw these grand parties. He and his wife later on in Princeton, which became legendary. He drove fast cars extremely badly. He never passed the test. Um, and you know he like you know he crashed a car every every year. So he told you know dirty jokes and dirty limericks at his parties. So, you know, one side of him is this kind of affable, pretty gentle soul who actually went out of his way to help people in, in trouble. Um, but the other, the other side of him was um, deeply um, skeptical later on as he grew older of, uh, of kind of the natural kindness of human nature. So he leaves um, Germany in 1930 to go to the States. Um, he has um, a phenomenal offer from the uh, from Princeton University with a big, big salary. And um, so he arrives and then pretty soon after that, he's recruited by this new elite institute called the Institute for Advanced Study. And he's one of the first recruits there along with Einstein and von Neumann is like years and years younger than Einstein. And Einstein, kind of has made his great contributions already really in Europe by this stage. And his career at the IAS is pretty unproductive. He, he's, um, he tries to formulate a sort of theory of everything. Um, uh, and he, it's, it's fair to say he doesn't succeed. Whereas von Neumann is phenomenally productive from uh, in his, in his, uh, during his time in America. Um, now, He's, he's there, he's in the States, and he sees what's happening in Germany with the Nazis coming to power. And it's exactly, it plays out exactly as he fears. And he has a fairly pivotal role in getting other um, intellectuals out, other Jewish intellectuals out of Germany, including um, Kurt Gödel, um, who was, uh, who von Neumann admired as kind of the premier mathematician of uh, of his age um and and then you know the the nazis devastate europe and they also devastate this almost perfect intellectual setting that von neumann really loved um the the cafes and bars where he hung out and talked maths with incredibly you know brilliant other minds that were around then so he comes out of the second world war and um, he is convinced that Stalin's Soviet Union is going to start World War III. He doesn't know exactly when, but he's absolutely convinced it's going to be within a decade. And it is really in that context of imagining um, a world-ending kind of war that he advocates for hitting the Soviet Union first, with the nuclear weapons that he helps, he's helped to invent before um, the Soviets can arm themselves. Now, um, this sounds brutal and insanely rational, and it's what got him car caricatured by Stanley Kubrick as Dr. Strangelove, along with uh, a few other people like Herman Kahn. Um, he formed the, uh, the, um, uh, the inspiration behind uh, Dr. Strangelove. But um, a preemptive strike was a phenomenally, uh, surprisingly popular idea within American circles yeah. at the time, including in government. And of course, Bertrand Russell, famously a pacifist, also kind of 
table the idea, he kind of proposed the idea. Um, and his rationale was that we should threaten the Soviets with a preemptive strike. Um, uh, and unless they gave up all of their ambitions to become a nuclear power and handed over their weapons, then, you know, America should let rip. And then we could put um, nuclear technology into the hands of some sort of world government. And I, uh, I mean, I don't, I try to avoid drawing any conclusions as to von Neumann's character, but I do try um, reasonably hard to kind of set um, his views on a preemptive strike thoroughly into, into a historical context. You know, the world's just come out of these dev this devastating war. And, um, and then a few years later, he's clearly, von Neumann's clearly changed his mind about this when it becomes apparent that uh, the Soviet Union now has uh, more atom bombs than, um, than you know, uh, would, uh, th then could be destroyed in a single sweep. So, you know, he realizes that there's not going to be any fast war and that any war is now going to be devastating. Yeah. And, uh, so that's me. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing when you mentioned Bertrand Russell also tabling that idea because he he's sort of I mean Noam Chomsky of all people has pointed to him as, as like a role model for his kind of uh, uh, way of being in the world and I can't imagine a guy like Noam Chomsky advocating a similar thing or I don't know maybe he would um, there's there's something I wanted to touch on there and we kind of talked about it in the beginning uh, of this podcast where. You talk about how Einstein was unproductive, uh, like mostly unproductive, uh, when he was at the Institute for Advanced Studies, uh, compared to von Neumann. And the interesting thing, I'm curious your, your thoughts on this, as um, especially as a writer um, who's crafting this biography of this man. And there's, I don't know if you ever read uh, Black Swan, uh, Nassim Talib, no. Um, in, in it, he talks about uh, how artistic reputations sometimes are built. And he mentions a guy like uh, Balzac, the French writer, who, uh, you know, he, he argues that perhaps this guy's rep literary reputation is not as well-earned as it might be. And, and the reason it came to prominence was a series of historical accidents. And he argues that in the arts, that tends to be the rule rather than the exception. Um, like, you know, is, is Van Gogh really that much better of a painter than Monet that he's the most beloved? Or is it just because there's a really good story around Van Gogh? And similarly, I'm curious if you think that, um, you know, maybe Einstein's story is just better. The picture of him with his tongue out is just more iconic. And then people attribute by virtue of the fact that they, he's more well-known, the story about him is more readily accessible. We sort of remember and organize our, our histories of life through stories. Um, maybe there's something to the fact that von Neumann is more important than a guy like Einstein and just his story isn't quite as uh, good. Yeah, well, I, I think that's, um, at least superficially, I think that's that's uh, completely true. Although I think von Neumann's story is, is quite a remarkable one I agree. as well. When you, when you realize, you know, who he ends up dancing his way through history with, you know, probably the most, prominent uh, figures in 20th century science and politics. But um, it's certainly true, you know, Einstein had, um, you know, had a better haircut. He had hair, um, <laughs> you know, von Neumann, uh, you know, uh, went, went bald. And we love 
this idea, I think, of lone genius. So the picture of Einstein laboring away in a patent office, unrecognized and coming up with relativity and, and the other stuff there by himself, I think is very alluring, although it's not true. Um, that's the story that's that sold. I mean, Einstein had his influences um, already, and there were, there were people who had some, you know, elements of the uh, the, the the theory of relativity in place. Um, he he captured the whole lot and is undoubtedly a genius. I'm, I'm certainly not trying to um, trying trying to um, suggest that Einstein shouldn't be famous, or his fame is ill deserved. But I, I would say that. Um, I think both von Neumann's achievements and his life make him uh, a little bit more difficult, especially as, you know, he's been caricatured as this Dr. Strangelove figure. So, you know, as a, as a good liberal, um, you know, we want to want to take a take a step back from that and don't associate ourselves too closely with this uh, strange Lovian figure. But I think, you know, as always, the, the truth is is more complicated and interesting. Um, and when you when you scratch the surface of von Neumann, you find actually, um, in general, a good man, a good human being in all of his personal interactions. But he, you know, he was capable of thinking these rather dangerous thoughts. And, you know, what do we value in contemporary society more? We have to sort of ask ourselves, you know, a person who's, whose acts and, um, you know, personal interactions seem to have been generous and good, um, or do we um, judge him on the basis of the fact that um, he tried to justify a preemptive strike on the Soviet Union based on his horror of the Second World War and, um, you know, mass Jews there. Um, I'll leave that as a, you know, as something for the reader to decide for themselves. Sure. Yeah. And, and when I said Einstein's story is better, I, I guess what I meant is neater. It's it's it, an easy three act structure. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and von Neumann sort of goes all over the place. You mentioned the strange Lovian uh, aspect. I'm curious, how did he get involved in the Manhattan Project to begin with? Yeah, so... Okay, so he's made his reputation really um, by 1930 already. At um, you know he's in his twenties, um, and immediately after his PhD, he's, he's arrived at Göttingen, and you know quantum mechanics is being invented there by Heisenberg, and he he makes this crucial contribution um, as he arrives because um, there's two versions of quantum mechanics suddenly appear on the scene. There's Schrodinger's wave mechanics and there's um, Heisenberg's matrix mechanics. And they seem to be saying very different things about the, um, about the physical world. And von Neumann kind of shows that these two seemingly distinct um, approaches to quantum mechanics are two sides of the same mathematical coin. And then he goes on to develop the first really firm mathematical foundations of quantum mechanics. Now, uh, again, it's uh, it's a curious omission, really, from history that you might read, you know, 50 uh, histories of quantum mechanics, and rarely will you find von Neumann's name mentioned beyond a kind of footnote. But, you know, he, he was there, and um, his uh, mathematically rigorous version of quantum mechanics ended up being incredibly influential for the next several decades. Um, but he doesn't get a mention because it's, you know, it's hard, it's maths. Um, uh, to, you know, to get to grips with it is hard. And many physicists didn't even bother 
So, <laughs> um, but so he's he's already a somebody by the time he arrives in in the U.S. and he quickly builds this reputation for him uh, for himself as um, an incredibly clear-headed thinker, and he he's in high demand by the army, the navy, the air force, by political figures, and he 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 lives this peripatetic lifestyle where he's being um, flown around all over the U.S. Um, by uh, by various uh, factions of uh, of the military, and he's um, because he knows war is coming. More or less, as soon as he arrives in the U.S., he looks at the really difficult mathematics of explosions, of modeling explosions, of understanding them, um, and so um, he becomes this military consultant as well as this professor at the Institute for Advanced Study, where he's churning out these um, incredible papers in pure mathematics. And then he's summoned uh, by the, uh, the American Navy to, to go to Britain in the midst of World War II in, um, I think, 1943 on a secret mission. And uh, we don't know very much about what he was doing there. We, we know that um, the Navy asked him to sort out German submarine uh, mine laying patterns in the channel, and he, he sorts this out quite quickly. He kind of susses um, how the Germans are, are laying their mines, so he saves a lot of uh, British ships from uh, uh, from hitting them. But and he, he does a few other things um, whilst he's over there, uh, including getting really interested in computers. Um, there's a uh, he, he's taken to the Nautical Almanac office, which is using this mechanical calculator um, to to um, to work out their tables. And um, he realizes and he knows it's, it's considerably more than just a simple calculator. It is in fact a very early mechanical computer. And this kind of fires him off. But his visit is interrupted by this great letter from Oppenheimer, who can't tell him why he needs him back in the US. So Oppenheimer writes to him saying, we are, we're in desperate need of your help. And on, on what um, I can only tell you is a Buck Rogerish uh, style project. And that's all he can say. And so von Neumann uh, rushes back to the US. And, um, and of course, the project that Oppenheimer wants to involve him in is the top secret Manhattan project, the US um, project to build the bomb. And, uh, Oppen and the fact is Oppenheimer already has people like Fermi and Feynman but he still feels that he needs uh, von Neumann there. He needs Neumann's brilliant mind. And the, the decision pays off for Oppenheimer in spades almost immediately. Um, and they, they've been um, struggling with a design of the bomb called the implosion bomb, which is, uh, was a very difficult engineering problem. Um, you know, there were, there were two designs, bomb designs. There was a simple, straightforward gun, type weapon where um, you just uh, basically accelerate together two bits of uranium as fast as you can and you get a critical mass and a big explosion but um, that would not have worked with plutonium um, because plutonium is more uh, reactive so by the time you got it together in that way it would have melted and you wouldn't get a big bang um, but the, the idea of the implosion bomb was to kind of crush 
the um, the fissile material evenly from all sides, and um, it was kind of dismissed by the scientists at Los Alamos as uh, like it's like crushing a can of beer without spilling a drop. Um, but von Neumann um, turns up and he goes, no, 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 you've been going about this all wrong. And because he's become this expert in explosives, he shows that um, you can use charged um, uh, shaped charges in a particular orientation. Uh, um, and that will create this spherical explosion front that will indeed crush this fissile material evenly. And, uh, and that design is basically like a modern day soccer ball um, a truncated icosahedron with a kind of mix of pentagons and hexagons. And he sees this pretty much immediately and it changes the course of what's going on in Los Alamos. Um, so that's how he, he got involved there. Did, did he, and you talk about Oppenheimer, who famously afterwards, you know, described his feelings upon seeing the detonation, of the atomic bomb, you know, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. And, and if you've anyone who's listening who has seen that video of him describing that he has a, a really stricken look on his face and he seems to have a deep regret about his involvement um did von neumann was there anyone i i'm i'm an engineer myself and a lot of engineers don't see beyond the problem they're working on was there any sort of moral reflection on what they were doing <clears throat> in that moment Right. Um, so a lot of scientists did have uh, regrets and voiced them. The thing is, von Neumann superficially, um, at least, um, didn't say much about that because he was so uh, terrified of what the Soviet Union would would wreak. And of course, you know, the Soviet Union, thanks to its spies in Los Alamos, um, had already got the bomb and they were hard at work. Um, ironically enough, uh, thanks to um, one of von Neumann's designs. He, he worked with uh, Klaus Fuchs at Los Alamos on a very primitive kind of uh, thermonuclear weapon. So this was one of the first designs for um, a hydrogen bomb. It wouldn't have worked. Um, and it was, it was inspired by, his, um, by another Hungarian, his friend Edward Teller's idea for a super, the, uh, uh, super hydrogen bomb. Um, so, um, you know, this, this leaked to the Soviet Union and the Soviets started their own hydrogen bomb project as a result of it. And then, of course, uh, after von Neumann was dead, they sent Sputnik into space and, um, you know, the, the era of the intercontinental ballistic missile was born. So von Neumann saw all of this really coming. And so he didn't allow himself to um, kind of, engage in any kind of hang ring, hang, hand wringing, but we know that he was in dread of technology of all sorts and not just the hydrogen bomb, but also the computer that he helped bring into being because uh, there's a very famous account of um, him coming home uh, from Los Alamos one day and basically going straight to bed. And his second wife, Clara Dan, is this incredibly intelligent woman who becomes um, the first modern computer programmer as well. Um, and she, she keeps this journal and she describes him waking up in the middle of the night and he's in a nervous state that she's never seen him before in his life. And he starts um, gabbling really about um, how, uh, you know, 
this technology that they were working on, nuclear technology, would make scientists the most feared and the most desired people on the planet. Um, and he's thinking about both weapons and, and both um, and peacetime applications of, of nuclear technology. But then he goes off um, on that and he, he actually seems to be talking about um, uh, technology in its a wider sense in terms of computers. And um, he is um, fearful, even more fearful of the potential of computers um, than he is of nuclear weapons. And um, he, you know, he, he says, but we have no choice but, but to work on them as, as scientists. You know, he was, um, he was really um, quite unusually a, a Democrat in kind of the, the, the truest sense of it. He, he hated authoritarianism and he felt that it was his job as a scientist to essentially do the bidding of the democratically elected leaders of the time. So he gave his advice but um, it was always advice. He, he didn't expect, um, you know, to dictate US policy towards either the bomb or anything else. Um, so, yeah, he, he kind of towed a, a very um, tricky line on this. And he clearly had his own fears about what was, what was happening. But he also kind of felt that it was his duty to give the US both computers and and the, you know, and the hydrogen bomb and everything else that he yeah. could. He, his contribution to computers is really interesting because there's things like von Neumann architecture and uh, he he in a lot of ways foresaw the uh, the modern internet. Um, can you talk a little bit about w what exactly he did in that area? Yeah, so he'd been he'd had a, had this long-standing interest in computing machines. And um, uh, he was, um, he put himself in charge, I think, uh, more than was put in charge by Los Alamos of hunting down more kind of computational um, capabilities. So he was crisscrossing the US looking at this sort of early generation of computing machines. And almost by, pretty much by accident on a railway platform, um, coming back from work one day, he bumps into this other mathematician, Herman Goldstein. And Goldstein's working for the army because it's you know, still, still the war. And he's an army liaison for this machine called the ENIAC. And the ENIAC is going to become the first fully electronic uh, computer. Um, and so as soon as Goldstein tells von Neumann this, and of course Goldstein recognizes von Neumann instantly because von Neumann's this, uh, essentially this celebrity at the time. He's as well known um, in the US almost as Einstein at this at this point. Um, then von Neumann starts uh, cross-questioning him about this device and, and Goldstein takes him back to see it. And um, the ENIAC was designed by um, uh, John Morchley, who's a, an ex-physics teacher, and Presper Eckert, who was this young electronics whiz kid. And um, it was designed, like all computers at the time, it was designed to do one job and one job only really well. And the, and the job that they designed it for was um, computing artillery trajectories, which was taking up a 
fantastically um, large proportion of resources, of manual resources, of course, and, and uh, you know, the, the people that were computing these artillery trajectories was almost, um, uh, they were almost all women, and uh, as were many of these so-called computers at the time. So um, what Morchley was trying to do was to, to um, to come up with a faster way of, of computing these trajectories. Now, von Neumann arrives on the scene and he is thinking about a different kind of computer altogether. He's thinking of um, a modern programmable computer. And within a few weeks, as well as sorting out uh, future funding for the ENIAC, because he's a man of influence, he sits down and um, you know um, he tries to distill in kind of logical form, what the architecture of a programmable computer would have to look like. And there are, you know, that, that design is now called the von Neumann architecture. It includes stuff like a huge memory, which the ENIAC didn't have. Um, and that, that memory crucially could hold both kind of computer instructions, program code and numbers simultaneously it had kind of um, uh, a path to the central processor unit and it would execute these instructions one by one and there was you know a, um, uh, a unit an arithmetic unit that was in charge of doing the sums the whole thing had the advantage with this massive memory of being a lot simpler and requiring fewer of these valves and so on than um, previous iterations. And of course, the big advantage was that you could feed it with any program you wanted with a, um, with a set of instructions and it could execute any program um, that you wanted without having to you know, pull out plugs and retest and, and do any of those things. And that uh, Goldstein circulated that report, which was called the first draft of, of the EDVAC. The EDVAC was supposed to be the next generation computer that the group was supposed to be working on. Um, and he circulated that quite freely to many groups all over the world. And this um, much, this caused a lot of aggregation, um, aggravation within the group because Morchley and Ecker had been hoping to patent parts of the ENIAC design and that, that would be the start of this many decades long patent battle that they would be enmeshed in and eventually they would lose. Um, whereas um, von Neumann would lead, leave the project uh, shortly afterwards to, to build his own computer at the Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, he secured funding for that. And um, while he was there and he was working on this new computer with Goldstein, Goldstein and, and von Neumann would issue these progress reports at the same time, which was completely open about all of their, all of their work. And in fact, these progress reports together with the EDVAC report, they would help spawn that first generation of uh, programmable modern computers today. And in fact, von Neumann would go back because uh, his own computer was taking too long. So he went back and with his wife, his second wife, Clara Dan, converted the ENIAC into a programmable computer of the modern style. And she wrote this first code, which was um, 
essentially atom bomb simulations and nuclear bomb simulations, which then ran on the ENIAC. It, so, yeah. It, it's, it's amazing to hear the entire history of it. And the fact that sort of near the end of his life, he was also working on the idea of computer, like self-replicating computers and AI. Well, what was his thinking there? Yeah, so the question of whether machines could make more machines, whether machines could have babies, that's kind of, it was a, a question that was tossed around by philosophers inconclusively for centuries. And von Neumann comes along and he's interested in computing machines. Um, but he starts to get interested in, in this question. And he produces this huge proof, really. It's a massive book um, that computers could indeed you know, have babies, computers could spawn more computers and they might be able to evolve as well as reproduce. And this took the form of a kind of game, really. It was um, uh, a massive two-dimensional grid and each of these grid squares could be in one of 50 or so different states and they could transmit pulses and so on. And he showed that a very large configuration of these squares put together would kind of autonomously start kind of snaking out an arm um, along this grid and start building an exact copy of itself, then copy its own code and transplant that into this um, uh, new machine and so on. Um, so it's the first proof really that machines could make more machines, but it was much more than that as we realized later and as he realized at the time, I mean, this was um, several years before Watson and Crick elucidated the structure of DNA. But von Neumann realizes that essentially what he's describing is um, how every organism or complex than a virus actually replicates. You, you need a code, you need um, the machinery to turn that kind of code into kind of flesh and blood or into another machine. And then you need the means of copying that code and putting it in to this new organism or machine. And this is essentially a description of kind of the modern um, molecular biology. Um, uh, this is a description of basically modern molecular biology years earlier than um, it was fleshed out. So you have DNA, um, you know, um, being turned into a, a new cell and you, you copy the DNA and the new DNA enters the new cell. And this is how, you know, all organisms kind of replicate. So he'd, he'd, he, he realized this and he described this, although not many biologists really noticed that he described it at the time. And um, just after I'd you know, just after the book came out in back in October in the in the UK, um, uh, you know, I noticed that there was an American group that described uh, these incredible things called xenobots. And what xenobots are, are are kind of stem cells, and they whirl around in a petri dish, and they collect more stem cells together in these kind of clumps. And these stem cells themselves start whirling around and collecting more stem cells. And these things have been designed by kind of an artificial intelligence, by a kind of a deep neural network. And um, they are the first kind of living realization of von Neumann's self-reproducing automata. 
Um, they are they are essentially machines designed by a machine that will make make more of make more of them. And that's you know whatever seventy years after von Neumann showed you know, the the proof that these uh, that these things existed. And, and the fact that he's so concerned about the fate of technology and the role it might play in our world, and he was also a guy who he he, he made major contributions in game theory as well. Um, and and actually, may, maybe that's just a good starting point. What, what were his contributions in game theory? Yeah, so he he found he founded game theory essentially, and he wrote the first book um, on game theory, theory of games and economic behavior, with the economist German economist um, a German economist Oscar Morgenstern. Uh, Morgenstern had arrived in Princeton from uh, Vienna, who's head of a, an institute in Vienna. And um, shortly after he arrived, the Nazis marched into Austria and his deputy shows up for work in full Nazi regalia. And, um, and, and Morgenstern decided it probably wasn't a good idea for him to return to, um, to Vienna, um, especially as his deputy got him blacklisted with the Gestapo. But Morgenstern has this preoccupation He's very critical of contemporary economics. Uh, he thinks it's all pretty useless. And one thing that he latches on to is um, this idea of a kind of um, self-referential loop almost um, when it comes to predicting, making predictions about the economy. He points out that if you make a prediction and then you tell anybody about it, then the likelihood is that they will act on it and thus the prediction no longer holds and break this um, circle. So he thought, you know, this idea that you could, that the economy is could help to, and he um, knows of von Neumann and they meet in Princeton. Um, and, they, and they meet in Princeton and, um, and they get on well. And what Morgenstern does is he supplies this, uh, these economic questions to von Neumann and von Neumann starts producing game theory as his sort of mathematical answer to it. And Morgenstern plays no role at all in developing the mathematics um, uh, of any of this. Um, now, von Neumann had already kind of come to this much earlier in his um, early 20s by producing a proof of something called the Minimax theorem. And this um, was a proof that for every two-person uh, zero-sum games, um, there would be a solution um, in uh, as either a pure strategy in the form of either a pure strategy or a mixed strategy. Um, a zero-sum game is um, a game where whatever one person wins, the person loses. And um, a pure strategy is like doing one thing um, all the time. Uh, and a mixed strategy is uh, kind of randomizing what strategy you play to win. And what von Neumann showed is that every two-player game, you must have a um, an optimal strategy. So if you think of um, something that we might know, uh, like rock, paper, scissors, you're playing that with somebody else. Now everybody knows 
that the optimal strategy for rock, paper, scissors is to randomize between the three properly behind your back. And anybody that plays, say, scissors all the time is going to end up losing. So what von Neumann did was show that formally with mathematics. And then, but he doesn't do anything uh, more for about 20 years. And it's only when Morgenstern turns up in Princeton that he goes back to it. And they write this massive tome um, uh, of theory of games and economic behavior and it founds modern game theory. And what this is, is that it's the mathematics of conflict and cooperation. And in fact, um, despite von Neumann's later reputation, a lot of theory of games is actually concerned with, well, how do you kind of form teams, coalitions, if you like, that are stable, um, that will give you the best outcome right and one way of thinking about that is if you play a game like say monopoly um and there's three of you say what happens quite naturally and you don't even have to talk about it is that one when one person when one player takes the lead the other two sort of team up against them and that's kind of a coalition to try and uh, kind of force an equilibrium and that and that coalition will last for as long as the other player uh, the leading player is kind of brought, brought down a little bit and then that will break up and there may be more coalitions or one player may may get ahead. And this was kind of this mathematical apparatus for dealing with all of this and they explained how monopolies might form or oligopolies in um, in business terms, which is not really a question that economists had concerned themselves with much because economists at the time were you know, as their first step, they would assume perfect competition. Yeah. And of course, we now know there's, you know, it's very difficult to <laughs> establish any kind of perfect competition. And when we look at, say, Amazon or Google, uh, you know, you worry about, you know, have they got, are they a monopoly? Are they, are they you know, in practical terms, are they a monopoly? And you know, how, how do we avoid monopolies from forming in the business world? Um, and And this was the the first big book on that. And it would take another 50 years, um, long after von Neumann was dead, uh, before the first Nobel Prizes started being um, awarded to game theorists, uh, beginning with um, a very famous uh, John Nash, whose life was portrayed kind of in a, in a beautiful mind. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned his, his, after he died, speaking of his death, uh, one thing that sort of puzzled me is that this famously rational guy converted to Catholicism at the end of his life, um, which I, I was raised in a Catholic family. Uh, I am no longer. Of all the the deathbed, not you know, quote quote unquote deathbed conversions, um, I wouldn't pick Catholicism. I, I'm just, no offense, but I'm just curious. What what, what drew him to that? Well, uh, I mean. His you're not alone. His family and friends were completely mystified by this. Um, what his daughter said was that he had told, von Neumann had told his mother that Catholicism was a terrible religion to live in, but it was the only one to die in. So she kind of suggested that perhaps it was Pascal's wager, which is, you know, you better commit to, um, you know, the true religion before you before you die, otherwise you're going <laughs> to... You'll regret it. And to be frank, what have you got to lose? Um, now, it's a, it's a bit more complicated than that, as always with von Neumann, because, uh, you know, ostensibly the whole family had converted 
when they were quite young, after his father had died, the whole family had converted. A lot of Jewish people, of course, did at the time for a matter of convenience to get on in the world because anti-Semitism was rife all over Europe and you know, and America. Um, but he never showed any kind of religious feeling throughout his life. He always behaved in this, um, you know, as if he was an atheist. Nobody really saw any deep um, kind of religious belief in him at all. But what happens is that von Neumann is struck down by this cancer one day and it deteriorates um, and he deteriorates and he's um, he ends up in a wheelchair and then he's finally admitted to hospital and he, he doesn't leave. He's, he's in hospital for a year and this cancer steadily metastasizes and it reaches his brain and he feels um, his incredible abilities, his incredible intellectual abilities begin to deteriorate and he can, he can feel his mind going and it's is I mean Edward Teller turns up by his bedside and he's utterly stricken um, by this view of this man who was quite clearly the sharpest brain that we know of in the 20th century beginning to lose the faculty that was most important to him and Teller says um, you know um, that um, he was a man whose primary pleasure in life really um, was to think and suddenly he found that he could no longer think in the way that he used to. And von Neumann is reduced to asking his daughter Marina in the end to set him simple mathematical kind of sums. And, you know, she, she, she can't bear this um, scene herself. And, you know, in her, and she talks about um, basically having to run away from his bedside in tears because she can't can't face her her father anymore as his brain deteriorates and it's really this fear of losing this incredible faculty that has been with him all his life I think that may partly explain why he turns to Catholicism again along with the fact that he he sort of may have justified it along these rational lines of um of, you know, uh, of a deathbed conversion. But he certainly seemed in earnest at that stage. He talks to the Catholic priest at the at the hospital. And um, even, even then, in the first few months that he's in hospital, he's still, of course, doing science. He's writing his famous lectures on the computer and the brain, which for the first time uh, compares com the, the serial computers that he's helped to design with the brain, which he concludes is massively parallel. And um, he uh, makes a lot of calculations about the different capabilities of these two different um, machines, which turn out to be pretty accurate, really, even down to the present day. And what he's done there is build the first bridge between neuroscience on the one hand and what we now know as computer science or artificial intelligence on the other. Um, so yeah, um, that's yeah. Uh, that's how that conversion came to be. It's it, it is kind of touching to know that this famously rational guy could kind of um, uh, I don't know if the word is waver at the end of his life, but but have some um, have some sort of human feeling and, and you know real fear of, of death and decline, etc. Um, well, 
I don't know, uh, the book is The Man from the Future. Um, before we go here, is there any way that people can reach you? Uh, the book, I'm sure, is available uh, wherever books are sold. Um, and But if people want to find you directly, let's say, how can they how can they find you? Yeah, I think uh, I think I'm on Twitter for along with Elon Musk, apparently far more often than I probably <laughs> should be. Um, so uh, my my username is at Onano. That's A N A N Y O. So if people have pressing questions or um, want to learn more about von Neumann, I'm I'm uh, I'm there. So most of the time. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much for your time, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. Thank you to Anano Bhattacharya, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.